Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. Edward Bernays was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. Bernays was a public relations pioneer, one of America's most innovative social engineers, and the author of a 1928 book brazenly entitled Propaganda. In the early 20th century, Bernays was called upon to persuade a wary U.S. populace into pulling a complete 180 to support their nation's entry into World War I. Bernays teamed with a veteran newspaper man named George Creel to form the Committee on Public Information, which came to be known as the Creel Committee. It was the first governmental agency for outright propaganda in U.S. history. It published 75 million books and pamphlets, had 250 paid employees, and mobilized 75,000 volunteer speakers known as four-minute men who delivered their pro-war messages in churches, theaters, and other places of civil, civic gatherings. The idea, of course, was to give the war effort a positive spin. President Woodrow Wilson declared at the time, it is not merely an army that we must train and shape for war. It is an entire nation. Indeed, the age of manipulated public opinion had begun in earnest. Although Woodrow Wilson won re-election in 1916 on the promise of peace, it wasn't long before he severed diplomatic relations with Germany and proposed arming U.S. merchant ships, even without congressional authority. Upon, upon declaring war on Germany in December 1917, the president proclaimed, conformity will be the only virtue, and any man who refuses to conform will have to pay the penalty. In time, the masses got the message, as demonstrated by these and other results. Fourteen states passed laws forbidding the teaching of the German language. Iowa and South Dakota outlawed the use of German in public or even on the telephone. From coast to coast, German language books were ceremonially burned. The Philadelphia Symphony and the New York Metropolitan Opera Company excluded Beethoven, Wagner, and other German composers from their programs. German shepherds were renamed Alsatians. Dachshunds became Liberty Pups. Hamburgers were transformed into Salisbury steaks, and sauerkraut was giving a, given a more patriotic sobriquet, Liberty Cabbage. Encouraged by the remarkable success of the Creel Committee, the U.S. manufacture of consent became as American as apple pie, or should I say Liberty Cabbage. This transformation, of course, included the creation of a never ending rogues gallery of temporary enemies. It might be anarchists or union members or the Japanese during World War II, the Red Scare, the Cold War, and of course, more recently, terrorists, terrorists, terrorists. But these days, those enemies are germs and microbes and pathogens. The enemy is the air itself. And I'll be damned if more than half this country hasn't bought into it. The powers that shouldn't be are mighty proud of themselves right now as they imagine they have finally found the Holy Grail, a permanent omnipresent enemy that requires 24-7 hypervigilance. But 
It's a house of cards. The entire enterprise is already collapsing under its own weight. Everywhere, people are waking up to the simple fact that not that long ago, we all shared drinks and food. We passed around weed, whether it was joints or pipes. We exchanged bodily fluids, sometimes unprotected. We shared saunas, steam rooms, and swimming pools. We played contact sports. We jammed together onto sweaty dance floors. We sang our lungs out side by side at concerts or at church. We hugged and kissed and cuddled our loved ones and so much more. Everyday people are realizing that the real enemy is the government and the corporations that own it. But not even those elites are permanent. They can and will be taken down. They will go the way of Liberty Cabbage if we collectively commit to intellectual self-defense. And part of that effort involves shunning the woke left, which brings me to this week's main topic. I'll get to that right after this word from our sponsor. Hello, post-woke listeners. Mickey Z here, inviting you to get involved. You can find me at mickeyz.substack.com. You can get the exact spelling of that. It's in the show notes. But you can join my Substack at any time. You can subscribe for as little as $5 a month. And as a paid subscriber, you will get all the new podcasts earlier than anyone else. You will get all the articles I write, which is at least once a week. You'll have permission to comment on any and all posts that you choose. And also you'll be really supporting this growing project. I guarantee you that in 2022, Post Woke is going to grow. It's going to explode. And if you want to be a part of it, go to mickeyz.substack.com to subscribe now. Now, If $5 a month is not something you can afford now, you can subscribe for free. In that case, you will get emails every time there is a podcast or article available for you to read or listen to. And I would please urge you to do that if you can't afford to be a paid subscriber. And either way, whether you choose to pay or not, I'm requesting that you share this content, that you let people know that this is a podcast you listen to, that you like, and that you want other people to listen to. You want to share this message of intellectual self-defense. So I thank you in advance for all your support, and I look forward to interacting with you all throughout 2022. Took all the trees, put them in a tree museum. And they charged the people a dollar and a half just to see them. Ten years ago, there was a ubiquitous two-word chant you'd hear loudly echoing through any and every Occupy Wall Street event. Fuck Monsanto. Sure, Monsanto has since been repackaged in Bayer wrapping, but the sentiment holds. Folks on the radical left were justifiably skeptical of official scientific advances. It was widely accepted that corporate power, corporate propaganda, and corporate science presented, and still present, an ominous threat to our shared ecosystem and all forms of life. As a result, the annual march against Monsanto once drew millions of angry rebels in cities all across the globe. Today, Just one decade later, liberal Biden voters publicly unite with the radical remnants of Occupy and Black Lives Matter in promoting the sentiment, because science. No longer does the woke left vociferously condemn what is produced in secrecy inside corporate laboratories. 
On the contrary, they go out of their way to shut down and censor any questioning of mainstream science narratives. The crowd that once grew hoarse from screaming, fuck Monsanto, has now transformed itself into an unpaid PR team for Moderna. Let's juxtapose these two paradigms, shall we? Because whenever I spoke to massive crowds about GMOs, etc., genetically modified organisms and foods, I would remind the audience that Monsanto was not a food company. Monsanto was a chemical company that made its name selling, for example, saccharin to Coca-Cola and Agent Orange to the U.S. military, which is really you and I since the bulk of our federal dollars always go towards war. Monsanto's products also included PCBs, dioxin, DDT, and RBGH. If any of those don't sound familiar, please consult your nearest search engine. And prior to merging with Bayer, Monsanto recorded annual sales of roughly $11.8 billion, operating 404 facilities in 66 countries over six continents with products grown on more than 282 million acres worldwide. Monsanto was one of three corporations, along with DuPont and Syngenta, that controlled 70 percent of the global seed market, aiming for monopoly power over the planet's food and water supplies. It's no wonder that everyone outside of the far right and libertarians was outraged. Meanwhile, in 2022, the same lefties who took on Monsanto and many other corporations are now cheerleading for a vaccine that was created in less than a year. To offer such unquestioning support, liberals and radicals have to downplay the fact that the average vaccine has previously taken about seven to 10 years to go from collecting viral samples to licensing a drug. Until now, the fastest vaccine ever approved and considered successful was for the mumps. That took four years, 1963 to 1967. Dr. Greg Poland, director of the Vaccine Research Group at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, explained this in May of 2020. It is possible to have a vaccine by fall or winter. It is not possible to have a vaccine by fall or winter that has gone through the usual safety testing. Speed is a trade-off with safety. So what about the companies that are entrusted with our health and safety? Well, Moderna, for example, has never brought a vaccine to market prior to this one in 2020, and Pfizer has a long, scandalous history of doing things like bribing doctors to use their products. Regardless, the U.S. left is marching in virtual lockstep under the banner of Because Science. Now, back to Monsanto. GMO is short for genetically modified organism and is the result of corporate scientists taking genes from one species and inserting them into another species in an attempt to obtain a desired trait or characteristic. For example, they might insert spider genes into goat DNA in an attempt to produce goat milk that contains spider web protein to be used in the manufacture of bulletproof vests. They take arctic fish genes and splice them into the tomatoes and strawberries that we eat to make those tomatoes and strawberries tolerant to frost. And potatoes can now glow in the dark when they need to be watered. And all of this and so much more is happening right now, even though our current understanding of the way DNA works remains quite limited. 
any change to DNA can have side effects that are impossible to predict or control. Still, the industry forges on. And here are just some numbers for you. 94% of soy is genetically modified. So is 90% of cotton, 88% of corn, and 95% of sugar beets. Here's a reality. 80% of processed food, which is contained in virtually everything you buy that isn't fresh whole foods, 80% of processed foods contains at least one genetically modified ingredient. Meanwhile, in 2022, that old fuck Monsanto crowd is pushing its way to the front of the line to get a vaccine or a booster that utilizes technology that was never before approved for humans. The first two COVID-19 so-called vaccines that were approved for emergency use, Pfizer and Moderna, use mRNA or messenger RNA technology. So, but when the FDA eventually has to pull these vaccines from the shelves, it should come as no surprise. Firstly, there's the obvious lack of long-term safety studies. Also, it's what the FDA does. It rushes medicines and devices out to please big pharma. And then each and every year, it recalls an, averages, an average of 4,500 of these products. You would think that the same people who challenged Monsanto would be up in arms you would be wrong. I'll be right back with more about Monsanto, Big Pharma, and the hypocritical left right after this short break. As some of you may know, I am a professional photographer. I have had, I've been taking photos for more than a decade. I've had my work hung and sold in art galleries. And one of my 12 books is a photo collection. So my latest photographic venture has been turning some of my photos into digital art, AKA NFTs, non-fungible tokens. This has to do with the blockchain, cryptocurrency, Ethereum, and so on. If you're familiar with those topics, then you know what an NFT is. If not, go to the show notes, find the link for my NFTs, click on it, and check it out. Either way, I urge you to take a look at my photos, buy some if you're interested. NFTs have become a rapidly growing form of investment. And either way, please share the link far and wide. I'm trying to reach as many people as possible. You helping me sell NFTs is an excellent way to also support this podcast. So I thank you in advance and let's get back to the show. Back in the day, the left would get upset and expose things like this. In 2009, a man named Michael Taylor was appointed by President Barack Obama to the position of Deputy Commissioner for Foods at the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. Taylor was the Vice President for Public Policy at Monsanto and played a role in getting GMOs being put into our food supply. So it's no wonder that everyone outside of the far right and libertarians were outraged back then. But today... The left is nowhere to be found. In a very similar type of situation, the Operation Warp Speed, the insane project to rush through these under-tested and never-before-used vaccines, was run by a man named Monsef Slawi. Up until his appointment, he was a board member of Moderna, and he divested his shares at a potential personal gain of $10 million, but he would not divest his shares in another of the funded big pharma companies, GlaxoSmithKline. He 
he was not a federal employee despite his position and instead he worked under a contract for one dollar and this exempted him from federal rules that would have required him to list his outside positions stock holdings and other potential conflicts you would think that this would raise the eye or at least get some attention from the woke crowd you would be wrong because some, none of this has inspired a march against moderna back to monsanto the FDA does not require a single safety study for GMOs, does not mandate the labeling of GMOs, and allows companies to put GM foods onto the market, market without even notifying them, the FDA. You might even say that we are the test. GMOs were introduced into the American food supply in 1996, and within nine years, the percentage of Americans with three or more chronic diseases jumped from 7% to 13%, while food allergies skyrocketed. Meanwhile, in 2022, the left appears to be blissfully unaware of the long track record of vaccines. For example, did you know that about 18 vaccines have been recalled just since 2006. For a detailed list and explanation of just some of the past vaccine disasters, I urge you to go back and listen to Post-Woke episode number five. I'll put the link in the show notes. The examples I give in that episode are very much worth considering today because they occurred under a normal timeline of such efforts. With COVID-19, everything was accelerated by at least 400% without a peep from the revolutionaries. Back to Monsanto. If you went to one of these marches against Monsanto back in the day, virtually anyone there would talk to you about something that was euphemistically called the Monsanto Protection Act. We all knew about it. Now, to be more specific, it was a section of a spending bill that was called the Farmer Assurance Provision. It was passed in March of 2013 under Obama. And it declared that even if an individual or group were to bring a lawsuit against a GM, genetically modified foods company, like Monsanto, no action could be taken until an environmental impact statement was compiled, and this would typically take years. So translation, the product suspected to be dangerous would stay on the market until the environmental impact statement inevitably declared it to be safe. The Monsanto Protection Act caused an uproar, and people on the left made talked about it. Everyone knew about it. But today, in 2022, laws have been put into place to prevent us from suing a vaccine company should we suffer from their errors or their greed. Thanks to something called the PrEP Act, we can't even sue the FDA for authorizing a rushed drug or sue our employer if they mandate vaccination as a condition for employment whether that vaccine is safe or not. You would think that all those who declared themselves to be open-minded, humane, and seeking to support the common man would never, ever line up behind such totalitarian behavior. You would be wrong. Leftists of all stripes deem anything but vaccine groupthink to be conspiracy theory or anti-science. Almost eight years ago, some 3,500 people lined up to hear me deconstruct Monsanto at a talk at Union Square Park in New York City. 
Meanwhile, in 2022, in my own little corner on Facebook, the folks who once packed venues to hear my speeches are deleting me without explanation. The types of posts that would have once garnered me scores of subversive followers are now more likely to make Republicans click like. To call this scenario Orwellian does not do it justice. Perhaps the term should be Zuckerbergian. I share all this information with you not to speak it into existence or to try and sound like gloom or doom. I'm trying to instill you with the knowledge of how the powers that shouldn't be operate, but at the same time remind you, as I've been explaining, that the COVID narrative is collapsing under its own weight. But with all these corporate and governmental powers keeping it, trying to keep it in place, it will require us to keep pushing and keep making new connections in order to finish this essential job. This means we cannot wait for leftists to change or wake up. We can't trust the left. We have to get busy without them. Let the woke crowd wallow in its censorship, its thought policing, its virtue signaling, and its groupthink, because we'll be too busy to notice because we'll be too busy defending and reestablishing our rights. And to do this, we must make new alliances. So you don't, but remember, you don't have to march in lockstep with someone to join together with them in the fight to save our democracy. Do not set up litmus tests or seek purity. You can and must find allies all across the ideological spectrum. You can find friends when you least expect it. Which brings me to my story of the week, and I'll get to that right after this brief message. Hey, farmer, farmer, put away the DDT now. Give me spots on the apples, or leave me the birds and the bees. We have some cool news here at Post Woke. If you go to the show notes, you will find a link for merchandise, more specifically, a Post Woke Hello Free Thinkers t-shirt for only $19.99. I am requesting that you check it out, that you buy the shirt, that you buy it for others as a gift. You wear it around and you start conversations about this podcast and you spread the word about intellectual self-defense. So again, the link is in the show notes and I really appreciate your support. It's a cool shirt, a cool design, and um, it will be really awesome is if you do order it, please be sure to send me a selfie to the email address that's in the show notes. So I appreciate your support and let's get back to the show. And now my story of the week. For more than eight years, I did my wash in the same laundromat called Sparkle Plenty. It was a relic. It first opened in 1973, and it appeared as if the decor had never been altered and rarely cleaned. It changed hands a few times over the years, but when I first encountered it in 2006, Sparkle Plenty was owned and operated by a Chinese couple who appeared to be in their mid-60s, maybe a little older. She was almost always smiling and pleasant. He seemed lost in a perpetual scowl, and heaven forbid you told him that one of his beloved machines ate your quarter. Despite his bellicose demeanor, I remained a customer while many others found a new place to clean their clothes. After all, Astoria is teeming with laundromats. Why was I so loyal? Well, firstly, it's less than a block away. Also, the dryers ran very hot, so I'd be done in no time. 
Lastly, I like the size of the place compared to the other laundries in the neighborhood. Sparkle Plenty appeared to have once been two stores. So it wasn't like you felt crowded in and people on top of you. Well, so with all these benefits, I decided to make it my personal mission to not let the owner's negative energy bother me. Good morning, I'd smile. It was always an effusive please and thank you when I needed change, and I'd never leave without wishing him a good day. Since I often walked past Sparkle Plenty during the course of my day, I'd look in and wave to the couple. As much as it seemed to pain him, the, main, the man would usually wave back. Eventually, however, I began to tire of his vexing energy and considered joining the exodus from Sparkle Plenty. That's precisely when I walked past and saw the large sign in their window announcing that Sparkle Plenty would close permanently in less than a month. My first reaction was relief. The decision was being made for me. I even decided to not wait until the place closed. The next time I needed to do my laundry, it was a, early on a Sunday morning, in fact, I got up and I took advantage of the earlier opening time of a new laundromat about a block and a half away from my apartment building. Good riddance, I said to myself. When I packed up my wash and exited my apartment building on the appointed day, who should I see trudging past me but the owner of Sparkle Plenty? Cosmically, he was opening earlier than usual earlier than I expected on that particular Sunday. He saw me holding a bag of wash, about to make a left instead of a right, and seemed genuinely confused. Suddenly feeling guilty about dumping him, I quickly recovered and asked, are you still open? He readily believed that I misread the sign, so I ditched my plan and walked beside him to sparkle plenty. Being that he moves with a pronounced limp, it was a slow pace and that gave us time to chat. And chat he did. In a matter of minutes, I learned that he owns a house nearby. I learned how much he paid for the laundromat when he bought it 16 years prior. And I learned that the reason he was closing it was basic capitalist logic. The lease had run out and the landlord was attempting to raise the rent by 33%. When it became clear that this, that this landlord had no intention of negotiating, Sparkle Plenty's days were numbered. We entered the laundromat together and I asked, how do you feel about closing this place? He shrugged. I'll bet you're done, I added, and it was as if that statement finally lowered his defenses. I'm done, he echoed loudly. I've had enough of the repairs and problems and people trying to cheat me for a quarter. They tell me they're paying my rent, but I don't make money off the machines. Do you know how much it costs to run these machines? You must have a huge water bill, I replied. Two thousand a month, he exclaimed. I'm lucky to, if I break even with the machines. I make my money on drop-offs, but the people who do their wash here think I owe them something. He was on a roll now, and I wondered how many had ever dared to have this conversation with him over the course of 16 years. I know people think I'm not nice, he said with a tiny grin, but it's simple. You're nice to me, I'm nice to you. If you don't like me, why do you come here? There are plenty of laundries around. We talked a bit more before he got to his work and I started my wash. I found him again later when I needed more quarters, and I asked him if he'd like to take a vacation when the place closed. I'd like to, he said quietly, just a little trip. When I encouraged him to do so, he to take a trip, he chuckled and patted me on the back. As I dried my clothes, I felt melancholy. I felt sad for this lost man who scowled far more than he smiled. I felt sad for a world in which profit and greed have displaced community. I felt sad for having waited eight years to break down the walls between myself and the laundry owner. When I finished, I peeked into the other side of the laundromat. Have a good day, I called out. He looked up from where he was sitting, his face lit up with a smile. 
I'll see you next Sunday, I explained, smiling back at him. I'll see you one more time before you close. This announcement caused him to laugh out loud, and his facial expression gave me an idea of what he probably looked like as a child. It was the face of a boy, a boy who had just made a new friend. I walked home with tears streaming down my face. Postscript. The following week, we chatted like old pals, and when it came, by the, came time to finish up, I extended my hand. Good luck, I told him. I wish you all the best. He clasped my hand with both of his hands, made direct eye contact, and replied, Thank you, my friend. And I thank you, my friends, for listening and subscribing and spreading the word, and most of all, for keeping your guard up.